You are listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. and welcome to Privacy Beat. Welcome to 2023. I'm so delighted to have a live show with all of you. We haven't done one in a while, but this one is going to be a banger because we have Marta Belcher here and she's one of the most awesome privacy advocates you are ever going to meet. She is president of the Filecoin Foundation. She is special counsel to EFF. You guys know that I talk about EFF all the time. Uh, she's on the foundation uh, for Zcash. She's like, I mean, she's involved with so many different privacy elements and and uh, she's spoken in front of Congress about all of this stuff. I'm really grateful to have you here in studio chatting with us and talking about the year ahead and what people need to be aware of, because we've got a lot, of, a lot of scary privacy things happening. A lot of scary privacy things. And thank you so much for having me, Naomi. It is such a delight to be here. Ah, so we're going to dive into it. Obviously, we have our regular segment that we like to bring you guys called Get Off My Digital Lawn. I feel like a real grandpa whenever that thing comes on. I was like, get off my digital lawn. But that's how I feel. You know, we have so many encroachments upon our privacy. And in the digital age, people take it for granted and people normalize it and people think that surveillance is inevitable. And it drives me crazy. Um, this is something we need to fight against. This is something we need to be vigil against, uh, vigilant against. And so we're going to dive into some topics in this show that tell people like how they should be vigilant. What things should you guys be aware of? What things can you guys do to protect yourselves? Because that is super important right now. Uh, so let's just let's just dive into it. I'm, I'm pretty excited. I've got here the first thing on my list. Uh, so I want to talk about Apple, which was huge news this year. And for the longest time, for anyone who's just joining and you're you know, not aware of things that have gone on in the battle uh, for privacy with Apple. So iCloud backups. You know how Apple says like, oh, this is super private. We keep everything on your device. We store it locally, la, la, la. And then in the same breath, they say, hey, you should back up everything to iCloud. But they didn't encrypt, end-to-end uh, -end encrypt their iCloud backups for many, many years. And it was rumored that they tried to do this around like 2016. And then around 2018, they actually decided not to do this because of pressure from the FBI. Well, this year, Marta, what was the news that came out? Because I think this is huge. Yeah, so two pieces of really big news here. So first of all, Apple is going to be end-to-end -end encrypting uh, its backups, the iCloud backups. Um, so finally fixing that major loophole in end-to-end -end encryption. Um, and then second, you know, there had been a huge controversy about Apple announcing that it was basically scanning user content to see if there was um, particular types of content and automatically reporting people based on the content on their phones to law enforcement. Uh, and so they also announced uh, just last month that they're going to stop doing that as well, which is 
huge news, a major win for privacy advocates. Absolutely. So I want to focus on the end-to-end encrypted backups now because this is, I mean, a lot of people don't care about their privacy. I get it. A lot of people don't want to have to worry about it. They think it's a hassle. What Apple is doing is baking that into their products so that the individual doesn't have to do anything, so that their stuff is secured and private and they don't even have to think about it. This is a huge step forward and the FBI is not at all happy. So the immediate thing that the FBI said, um, they, uh, they told the Washington Post, as soon as Apple announced this, they said, we are deeply concerned with the threat end to end and and user-only access encryption poses. So they're deeply concerned about people having privacy online. You know, um, They basically said that this hinders our ability to protect the American people from criminal acts and you know, terrorism, violence against children. They threw in all the buzzwords about like, we can't have privacy because terrorists are hurting children. And, uh, and then they said, you know, in this age of cybersecurity and demands for security by design, the FBI and law enforcement partners need lawful access by design you know it's like I, I it's crazy because in real life we're used to being able to have a private conversation with the person next to us and the FBI is saying well it doesn't matter that most of your private conversations happen online you no longer have that privilege of privacy we want everything we want all your data I want to know from you Marta is what you think is coming down the track for 2023 because we've seen huge battles between companies like Apple and the FBI when it comes to encryption. We've seen huge battles about end-to-end -end encryption in the past uh, where the government has basically considered it uh, you know, a, a, a munition and they've prohibited export of this in the past. There's this big war with the cypherpunks. You guys should read it. I've got a book by Julian Assange up there which talks a lot about this war. Anyway, I want to know what's coming down the track um, and whether you're going to see this battle heating up in 2023. What users can do to protect themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. So as long as there has been encryption, governments and law enforcement in particular have been trying to undermine it, whether that's by outright banning it, banning its export, or what you're seeing more frequently in recent years and, and what you're seeing in this statement um, by introducing backdoors, right? Um, and so we saw that play out back in 2015, 2016 with FBI v. Apple, where the FBI was trying to demand that Apple basically uh, create software backdoors um, into their phones. Um, and, you know, now what we're seeing is it, Apple actually in recent years sort of um, having for a long time really been uh, champions of user privacy. We saw them introduce that uh, phone scanning. Um, and luckily, just in this last month, we've seen a major return to Apple really standing up for users and Apple saying, you know what? No, we're not going to be scanning our uh, all of all of users' phones for potentially illegal material. And we're, we are going to encrypt uh, iCloud backups, not just the phone itself. So these are two major, major wins. And I'm so happy to see Apple um, really taking that stand for its users. Um, you know, fundamentally, this comes down to you're going to see increasing pressure, um, as there always is, from law enforcement, uh, including the FBI, on companies like Apple. And the question is, what are the companies going to do about it? Are the companies going to stand up? Uh, to the law enforcement agencies. Um, and, and really, I think it's important that we applaud Apple in this moment. And also that we note that other companies uh, are not 
necessarily champions of privacy in the same way that Apple is. Um, so I think it's a great moment to applaud Apple for these decisions. Um, to you know, really great that they have gone back on their disastrous uh, decision to scan <laughs> scan phones. Um, and I think um, really a moment to to celebrate. But look look looking into 2023, really keep an eye on the types of pressure that we see law enforcement putting on companies behind the scenes. Yeah, and a call to action here as well, because I think that a large reason why Apple then backtracked on their CSAM scanning and all this stuff is because of major pressure from the community. Here's the thing, we've got all these private companies, they're free to do whatever they want, right? They can make their own decisions for their businesses, but we as consumers wield a lot of power. And if we let them know what we want, Sometimes they listen. In this case, it seems that Apple has listened. The privacy community went crazy over a lot of this stuff. And then they said, okay, you know, we're going to push forward for more privacy. I think that by voting with our feet, by choosing products that don't collect data, by patroning, patronizing products that, uh, you do protect our privacy, we can make a big difference in the privacy tools available to all of us. So my takeaway from all of this before we move on to the next topic is, you know, look for the products that are protecting your privacy. Look for the ones that aren't collecting your data. Move away from the things like the Gmails and the Microsofts and all of that, because there are so many awesome alternatives out there that you guys can be using. Um, one thing I will say about Apple that Marta really, you know, hit the nail on the head there is that they're baking this stuff into their products. They're making it super easy for the average person. They're not, you know, to not even think about. Um, I I don't think Apple is the most private tool out there, right? If you guys want real privacy, I think you should choose other products. But if you're looking for something for your mom and she doesn't really know how to work all this stuff, choose Apple. If you're looking for something for your grandma or something for your child or whatever, Apple brings a lot to the table with ease of use and with great user interfaces, and they bake a lot of privacy tools into their products. They do collect a lot of telemetry. We've talked about that on the show before. Um, but in terms of ease of use, they're a great mainstream option if you're just looking for something super, super easy. If you're looking for something that's more extreme, I recommend that you dive into better products. Um, Michael Basil has a great book called Extreme Privacy that you guys should check out. So I'm going to read out. We got a uh, donation from first and last name. I respect your, uh, <laughs> your penchant for privacy there, first and last name. Thank you so much for uh, donating. We also got a comment on the channel. It says, Amy, Give us a discussion with your guest about how crypto can be applied in real life. So I have a question there. You could mean cryptocurrency. You could mean cryptography. Uh, cryptocurrency derives its name from the word uh, cryptography. I'm presuming you mean cryptocurrency. Um, and I think that like just maybe a quick discussion of this before we move into the next topic, I would say um, like to start us off with crypto is the only uh tool we have available to make private transactions online. It's the only tool. And we're going to dive into this topic pretty fully. Marta has a great quote. Uh, and this next topic we're actually going to cover is about CBDCs, about the banning of financial privacy uh, in America and about, uh, you know, politicians really trying to forbid us from any type of uh, financial autonomy and privacy. So uh, let's let's just dive into this because I know you have a lot to say about this, Marta, and you, you wrote a great article that really distills this. Um, so I'm just going to hand it over.
Sure, absolutely. So, you know, one thing that we've been seeing sort of in answer to this question um, is that governments have really been taking the surveillance of the traditional banking system and really extending it to cryptocurrency. Um, and that's been happening for years. Um, and we really saw that heat up in 2022, unfortunately, with things like tornado cash um, being put on the OFAC sanctions list. Um, and, and most recently, as a reaction to FTX, uh, we actually saw Senator Warren introduce a bill, um, which has been uh, a, a really shocking, frankly, and, and disastrous bill for privacy. Um, so what that bill would do is uh, two things. So first of all, it would actually require that basically every single uh, participant in a blockchain network. So that includes miners and validators. It also includes token holders or uh, any individual that could have control over the network um, or uh, creators of wallets, including self-hosted wallets. It requires all of those participants in blockchain networks to register as money service businesses, um, which is in frankly insane, um, absolutely bonkers. Completely unfeasible. Like you, the data they're asking these people to collect it's, isn't even available like they, they've got this wish list that doesn't make any sense ah oh. exactly it's absolutely insane because as money service businesses these these companies would first of all have to not just companies these individuals these miners these participants and networks would have to register as money service businesses with the government they'd have to implement really complicated anti-money laundering and know your customer checks they'd have to know the personal details of each of the people using their software um, they would have to automatically spy on their users and in some cases automatically turn over information about transactions to the government by default. Um, so this is completely infeasible, not just because it's difficult, but because it's impossible. Because in blockchain networks, the whole point of a blockchain network, right, is that you aren't able, if you're a miner, you don't know who is the, the personal details of the person who is actually using uh, your software, right? Um, and if you're developing a self-hosted wallet, you don't know the personal details of the people who are using that self-hosted wallet. That's the point of a self-hosted wallet. Um, so it's absolutely ridiculous and completely impossible to comply with and would absolutely grind the entire blockchain ecosystem in the US to a halt. And that's just the first thing that the bill does. And the second thing that the bill does, which is just honestly, um, really kind of the pinnacle of, of governments really extending the surveillance of the traditional banking system to cryptocurrency, is it creates basically a total surveillance environment um, for cryptocurrency. So it says that all of those network participants that we covered that would be classified as money service businesses, so miners, validators, token holders, software developers, all of those participants um, cannot actually uh, engage with or interact with any privacy coin or any other technology that enhances anonymity, right? So you're effectively banning privacy coins and any technology, uh, whether it be mixer, mixers, tumblers, any other anonymity enhancing technology, which is just insane. So this bill is just bonkers um, across the board. Um, and I was really shocked to see this introduced um, as sort of the pinnacle of several years of seeing um, really that financial surveillance being uh, extended and extended and extended to, to this point. Absolutely. And there are a couple of quotes from this article that you wrote where you really distilled this issue so well. Uh, you, you wrote, you know, Senator Warren seems to have forgotten that privacy and anonymity are not bad or illegal. In fact, they are essential for civil liberties. And that's part of the discussion that we often forget because we all want to save children. We all want to stop terrorists. We all want to stop bad people doing bad things. It's just a question of 
do the means, uh, does the end justify the means? And when the means are mass surveillance and the complete lack of any privacy in an individual's life, we have to be questioning what kind of a society we're setting up. So we're talking about all these blanket surveillance rules. You know, politicians already have tools where they can target people and they can put out warrants and they can, you know, do targeted surveillance and get the bad guys. What they're saying is we're going to presume that anyone who wants privacy in their life is a bad guy. We're going to prohibit them from having that privacy. We're going to prohibit anyone who's considered a financial institution, which is everyone in blockchain, <laughs> according to Senator Warren, you know, we're going to pre prohibit them from any sort of involvement with privacy tools. That's not okay. Stopping an entire population from having the benefits of any kind of privacy in their financial decisions is not okay. And we need to fight against this. You know, another great quote of yours, Marta, um, from this article, you said, you know, the blockchain technology imports the privacy protections of cash into the online world is a feature, not a bug. That's the thing that I want to kind of round out with as we, we um, you know, have final thoughts on this topic is that, for the longest time, we didn't have transactions online. We had transactions in person and we were afforded lots of privacy during this. It didn't, you didn't even used to have to provide an ID to open a bank account, right? And we used to pay with cash for everything. Um, you know, credit cards, debit cards, online transactions, PayPal, Venmo, these are all relatively recent phenomenons. And with that, all kinds of financial surveillance has started to be piled on. Now, as all of our lives migrate to that digital realm and all of our financial transactions start to become digital, we, I think that we have normalized this surveillance as a society. I think we've forgotten that we used to have a lot of privacy in financial transactions. And what crypto does and what you so eloquently described is that with crypto, all you're, all you're doing is just giving back people the same privacy protections that cash already gives them. We're just giving that in the digital realm. You know, if your question um, to the person who commented is about like, how do we involve crypto in our daily lives? Crypto is the like privacy coins in particular that it, they are the only way that you can make financial transactions online privately. That, that's a huge value proposition. But I want to hear your take on, on all of this, Mata. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I so just like the, the big picture zoom out on this from my perspective um, is that in the United States, we do have a way to balance the reasonable needs of law enforcement with the civil liberties of people. And that is the Fourth Amendment, which is to say that if someone is suspected of committing a crime, then law enforcement, um, based on probable cause, can go to a judge and say, here's our probable cause. We want to go search, uh, you know, this person's um, uh, documents and the judge can say, OK, yeah, that's probable cause and issue a warrant. Right. And that is what we are supposed to do in order to make sure that law enforcement um, is getting to do what they need to do and at the same time balancing out the rights of individuals. Um, and what we've really seen is, particularly in the financial realm, um, that has just greatly expanded to the point where it's not about having probable cause or suspecting any individual, but massive amounts of people, in fact, all people having their information turned over to the government by default without a warrant, which to me is absolutely insane and unconstitutional. Um, and really, that is something that we have normalized, um, I think, for, for much data, um, but particularly for financial data. I think um, for some reason with financial data, there's this idea that, well, money is different. And when you have financial transactions, uh, of course, we should turn over that, that information to the government, which 
I think is absolutely crazy. Um, I think it's uh, financial data is so important. Um, it creates such a window into our daily lives. If you think about what you can really glean from someone's financial transactions today, you can glean what organizations they're donating to, where they are, right, their location, um, who they're associating with, um, all sorts of things. Um, and it really uh, paints an intimate portrait of someone's life. Um, and I think it's so important that we really push back against that government surveillance, um, not just when we have these crazy bills like the the one uh, that we have in front of us here uh, with Senator Warren's bill, um, but also just in general, when we see the financial surveillance of the traditional banking system being extended onto cryptocurrency, I think it's so important that we fight back. Yeah, absolutely. And we got a comment in the, the chat just saying, what do we think about the UK and other countries making transactions in Monero illegal? I think it's preposterous. I think it's it's crazy. You know, it's not unexpected. I'm not surprised that countries are clamping down on privacy coins. Um, but it is something I think we need to fight back against. We have the right to make private transactions, right? And as, as soon as that becomes illegal, we should be really worried about the people we've elected into office and what kind of society they're creating. So I think that in this situation, I mean, I, I, I'm not gonna encourage you guys to do anything illegal. I think you guys should just look at your situation and just figure out what you need from your life. The great thing I would say about privacy coins is that they are private. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of things you need to take in, into account when you're using privacy coins, um, different ways that data can get leaked, make sure you're really comfortable with how all of that works. But privacy coins currently are the only tool for making private transactions online digitally, right? So this is something that we need as part of our digital uh, global economy. This isn't something that politicians are allowed to just <laughs> disappear. I think that if you're in a country that starts prohibiting this, then you know maybe you should look to more <laughs> freedom-loving countries that recognize the right for people to make their own financial choices. Um, it's uh, there's a lot to dive into, you know, but I just think that we are like this isn't an unexpected battle. This is a battle we all have expected for years and years. Mata has has spoken extensively about all of this, um, and it's we knew that it was coming. You guys. All need to be familiarizing yourself with privacy tools because the government does want to get rid of a lot of privacy tools. Um, I think people should get comfortable with using them and figure out how they incorporate them in their daily lives. Um, but let's talk about this new demographic that I think has really started to become more interested in privacy. It excites me to see new waves of people suddenly realize that privacy becomes important and it breaks my heart that this only ever happens when really bad things happen to people, right? So, I mean, we've got like the war in Ukraine, which we'll dive into in a moment, but suddenly everyone there starts to be cognizant of privacy and how important it is to have private communications. Um, you have Roe versus Wade in America, suddenly a huge demographic of women who weren't thinking about privacy suddenly went, oh, if I wanna be able to make, you know, choices, then I need to protect my privacy. Like I, I, I don't know about you, but I saw a, just a flooding of women start to be aware of privacy and ask questions about how they can protect their privacy, which is super interesting. I've got a tweet here. I just want to bring up this tweet. It's from uh, Jin Su. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, Jin Su says, I say this as someone who writes about politics and economics of self-tracking, delete those fertility apps, 
now. Um, so a lot of women posting things like this who are like, how do we protect ourselves? We're not going to go into this whole debate, obviously. We're talking about just the issue of privacy. Marta, I want to know from you, you know, what you see in the year ahead, because seeing a whole new demographic um, get interested in privacy, I think is really important for us as a society. I could not agree more. You know, I think that this really comes down to, I think for a lot of people, it's been really hard to communicate with mm -hmm. them the way you have been, um, Naomi, um, the importance of privacy and for them to really get it. Um, you know, when you're in a really privileged position in the United States um, and you see yourself as a law abiding normal citizen, right? Um, messages about privacy uh, don't necessarily hit home for you because you, you think, well, gosh, I'm a law-abiding citizen. Why would I need to make a transaction anonymously? Why would that apply to me? Um, you know, why can't people just comply with the law? And I think for that reason, people really see this mass surveillance as being something that isn't problematic for them personally. Um, so what we saw with the Dobbs decision, unfortunately, is suddenly um, women and, and others across the United States um, really realizing gosh, I can really see why I might actually need to be able to make anonymous transactions, right? Why I actually need financial privacy. Um, you know, we saw um, uh, mothers and daughters being prosecuted based on um, information that was handed over to the government by social media um, companies, right? Um, and I think women just started to realize the importance of privacy suddenly um, when you realize that you are in a country where you no longer have basic human rights, right? Um, and I think that's something that people around the world have really understood for a long time. Um, for example, um, I, I the I I often will talk about this um, picture I saw that really hit home for me, which was a picture of the protesters in Hong Kong in these really long lines in the subway stations um, because they were waiting to pay for their tickets with cash. Right? They understood the importance of financial transactions. Um, so dissidents really understand this. Whistleblowers understand this, and unfortunately now women across the U.S. understand this. Yeah, and there's a great quote. So um, when we're talking about protecting our privacy. And I wrote a lot about, you know, how protesters can protect themselves during the Hong Kong protests. Um, but where we also want to look at how, you know, in any situation, like we're not just talking about this situation, zoom out and laws could change tomorrow that would affect you personally, even if this one doesn't. That's the point that we're making here is like, what happens if societal norms change tomorrow? What happens if the law changes tomorrow? What happens if a regime changes tomorrow and suddenly you're no longer that law-abiding citizen. Suddenly something valuable to you gets changed. How do you protect yourself? And a lot of people, like with this particular instance, were talking about, oh, well, you should delete your fertility apps. And that's, you know, that's going to save you. And the reason behind this is because a lot of these apps will track your data. They will sell your data. Um, they're not great. You should be looking very closely at the privacy policies of all of the apps that you use. You should be looking at the permissions that they offer. But it's not just the apps, right? You should be concerned about sending that SMS to your mother. You should be concerned about writing that DM on Facebook or, or Twitter. You should be concerned about all of the ways you communicate where the companies involved have access to that information. That is the message that we try to get across to all of you um, is like, what tools can you substitute for more private options and leave behind the ones that are collecting all your data? Like leave behind the Gmail, leave behind the Skype and Microsoft, like leave behind Microsoft Word, Microsoft 365. You know, how do we 
choose more private tools in our lives. And I think that this, you know, it's a great time. It's a great learning moment for a lot of people um, uh, because it's just, you know, we have these tools at our disposal now. It's exciting to have these tools at our disposal. A lot of people don't realize that they exist. A lot of people just don't know about them. Uh, we put out, a, as I said, we put out a, an ebook at the, the um, end of last year that Marta actually helped us out on. And if you guys look through that, we give a whole bunch of recommendations for products, including like browsers and search engines and uh, email providers, messaging services, um, all of that, VPNs. Um, so if you're looking to just simply start to incrementally add more privacy layers to your life it is a great time to do that great time um but i don't want to stop on this topic i want to continue down this track of like new demographics realizing the importance of privacy um and talk about what happened in ukraine because this is another example of suddenly you know um you you have a hostile regime entering your country overnight and people suddenly need to be cognizant of, of their privacy I don't think people should wait until the situation is so dire before they explore these tools. So like, what did, what did we see as an aftermath of all of this? Did people start to become more interested in their privacy? Yeah. You know, I think, um, uh, it's sort of, uh, in parallel to what we've been talking about with people suddenly not being law abiding citizens. Um, we've really seen, um, an uptick in the use of end to end encrypted messaging technology, um, things like signal, um, and also other privacy technologies like Tor. Um, in Ukraine um, and in Russia as as people who were previously law-abiding citizens have become dissidents, right? Um, and as um, people have, have been um, rightfully concerned about their um, privacy and, and safety during uh, the invasion. Um, and so I think um, it's it's um, really great to see the adoption on Signal um, and also on Tor. Um, and it's something that I really think, I really think everyone should be, not just in Ukraine, not just in Russia and um, but I really think everyone should be looking to adopt uh, Signal. Um, I use it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I am uh, encouraged to see um, that we have these tools and that people are using them. Absolutely. So I want to bring up a particular graph of this Signal adoption. If you guys don't know what Signal is, it's an end-to-end -end encrypted messaging app. It is the go-to place if you want secure messaging online. Don't go to email. Email is an inherently insecure uh, protocol. Uh, Signal is your best tool when it comes to privacy, and it's just really well implemented end-to-end -end encrypted messaging. Look at this. So what we're looking at here is the difference from like mid-January to mid-February and mid-February to mid-March, the increase in adoption. You've got 184% increase in Signal and Telegram daily active users uh, in the Ukraine and in Ukraine, sorry, and you've got 81% uh, increase in Russia. Like why would people be using this in Russia? Well, if you're anti-war and suddenly your government is cracking down on anyone who is protesting the war, you want to find a way to communicate securely and privately with people. So here is just such a great example of how privacy is so important and how you never really know when it's going to suddenly become important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this really underscores um, why it's so important because um, really at any time, any of the messages you were previously sending, uh, right, those are now unfortunately compromised. And so mm -hmm. I think um, this is why it's so important to adopt privacy enhancing technologies early. Um, and I think it's very encouraging to see um, really a lot of um, activity moving to end-to-end -end encrypted uh, technologies. Absolutely. And so on this note, um, a lot of media outlets, it drives me 
batty. They start talking about Telegram as also being a private messaging app that people are downloading. I just want to cut to the chase right now and just tell you guys, don't use Telegram for privacy. Don't use it. It is not a private app. None of your group messages are end-to-end -end encrypted. None of your personal messages by default are end-to-end -end encrypted. Deep in the settings, if you want a private conversation, you can select secret message. No one uses that. And I bet you that every single conversation you've been part of on Telegram is completely saved in plain text on Telegram servers, right? You should be very concerned about this. You should be very concerned about using something where you're like, oh yeah, it's private, isn't it? And having this false sense of security. It is not. There is a great article that came out. Um, well, there's a story that broke in the Washington Post uh, about Ukraine and about two people who are basically helping to um, s perform sabotage and espionage operations from behind and lines and then you had an article from porn all things that kind of dived into why like what we could learn from that about how compromised telegram is by the russian government very interesting article that kind of you know just explored what they probably have access to but we all know like it's basically it's all there you can it's on their website Everything is stored in plain text on Telegram servers. Uh, you know, uh, all group messages, all private message, uh, all um, individual messages by default. You guys shouldn't be using this tool. If you want a private messaging tool, you need to use Signal. Um, but I, you feel so strongly about this. I'm going to hand off to you for final words. I do feel so strongly about this. Um, one of the things that's really been shocking to me is how much people in the cryptocurrency space use Telegram by default, which is yeah. insane to me because, you know, some of the fundamental ethos of cryptocurrency um, is this idea of encryption and privacy. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea that, uh, you know, a lot of people in cryptocurrency just default to Telegram is absolutely mind boggling to me. Um, and I, whenever possible, I try to move people to signal. Absolutely. We also, so on our channel, um, if you guys are using Signal, one thing that was interesting was what happened in Iran, which I just want to briefly touch on, is, you know, they shut down the internet, they started banning entire services, they blocked Signal. Uh, but there was actually a way that people in the rest of the world could help them. Basically, if a company blocks at the server of a tool that you're using, it means that people in your country can't access those servers. And so Signal put out a tutorial and then MBTV, we did a tutorial just like walking you through step-by-step step how to do this. You can create a proxy server, a Signal proxy server, where people in Iran could actually connect to you and then that connects them with the Signal server. And it's just an amazing tool, like decentralized tool for giving people back their privacy and access to privacy tools. So I've got people in the comments asking like, what if they cut off internet? What if they, you know, cut off services to different apps? All of these things, you know, cutting off internet in general, really, really tough. I don't think we've solved that issue. If the internet goes out, we've got a whole lot of issues right there because so much of our world runs on internet. But cutting out, access to certain servers, there are ways that we can help. Um, there are tools like decentralization tools that are really cool. So Filecoin um, also is, is like, if you guys know of I, I, IPFS, it's this very interesting decentralized storage tool. And then Filecoin is basically an incentive system that like goes on top of that. So things like that, that basically, you know, share data so it can't just be deleted off a single server, create redundancy so that people don't lose access to certain things. There are all kinds of amazing tools out there right now that you should be just plugging into, slowly learning about, because 
we become really reliant on these centralized infrastructures and governments do have, you know, ability to flip a switch on a lot of this stuff, but there's so much that we can do to circumvent that. And we can help people like protesters in Iran who are protesting a very, you know, brutal regime there. We can do a lot to help these people. I think it's great to familiarize ourselves with these tools. I couldn't agree more. I think um, one of the things that's so always been so exciting to me about decentralized technologies um, is the ability to really circumvent um, these types of internet shutdowns from authoritarian regimes. Um, that's always been something that I found very exciting about um, this technology um, and really something um, that uh, I, I think uh, is is worth looking out for. Absolutely. So we did get a couple of, uh, of donations from uh, the chat there. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. We run entirely on community donations. We don't have sponsors on this show. So we really appreciate your support to just keep, you know, um, giving you all kinds of free tutorials that can walk you through how to improve your privacy. So we've got here Crash Mondo uh, sent us a donation. Then we've got Anonymous sent us a donation as well. Thank you both so much. Really Really appreciate uh, your support there. Um, and then we've also got uh, a lot of um, uh, like comments about metadata. People are saying like metadata is a huge issue. Like I wasn't planning on talking about this on the show, but maybe we can quickly address um, that issue. Some people are saying like, well, it's more of a concern than content, more of a concern than end-to-end -end encryption. They're actually not distinct. You can end-to-end -end encrypt metadata as well. You can, you know, um, so let, let's kind of dive into this. First of all, give us an overview, like what do people mean when they talk about metadata and why might this be information we, we'd want to protect? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that has been a huge topic, um, really even going back to the Snowden disclosures, for example, um, when you were talking about um, all the different types of mass surveillance that we've seen. Um, so, you know, you may have data, like let's just talk about um, phone calls. There there might be data um, about actual content, the content of your phone calls, um, and that would be data, but then metadata would be when you made the phone call, who you called, what time you called, right? That's metadata. Um, and one of the things that we've actually seen uh, really for decades is the government uh, in the United States um, taking the position that metadata should be treated differently than data and that there should be more surveillance for metadata. And the problem with that position is that metadata actually provides tons of information, right? Um, you know, actually, you know, even without the content of communications, um, just knowing who is emailing whom, right, and at what time, um, really provides a window into someone's life. Um, and I think that um, the idea that metadata uh, is somehow less sensitive and somehow should be protected less um, is, is absolutely absurd um, and really is something that we um, uh, really came up uh, a lot during the Snowden disclosures and uh, in the years afterward when we realized the extent to which the government was uh, using metadata in a way that um, was really suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's just we have to be so cognizant of all the ways that data can be leaked. There's a lot to deal with. Honestly, don't get too overwhelmed by all of this. I think if you are making like big choices to just swap out your email, swap out your messaging provider, swap out which search engine you use, you are making a huge difference to the amount of data that's collected about you. So just go at your own pace. Don't be overwhelmed. You are making a dent, even if you feel like, well, there are all these other ways it's being uh, you know, released. Understanding how privacy works. I think Snowden said it best when you know he talks about how there are cracks in the system and those cracks can be learned. It's not like the 
government has like one program that's like monolithic surveillance. No, no, they use private corporations to do this and the prison program. Then they get access to, you know, temporal, the, the total um, data collection, full take collection that happens in the UK. Then they get access. They do all these little things. But between those different programs, there are cracks. And we as individuals who care about this can learn those cracks. Don't be overwhelmed. Just start slowly. Do the big things first and it'll get you 80% of the way there. Just not having Gmail read every single email you send is a huge first step. So yeah, go slowly. Yes, you know, metadata, all of this stuff is incredibly revealing. And there are definitely ways to protect it. Like Signal, for example, um, you know, does a lot to protect a lot of your metadata. Um, they, even the way that they handle stickers and emojis and all of that is very privacy preserving. There are lots of tools out there that you can delve into that helps protect some of this stuff. When you're posting an image, you can scrub metadata from that image before giving it to Instagram, you know, things like that. And you can learn about all of this stuff, but just go slow and don't get overwhelmed. So the final thing that I want to talk about and uh, before we dive into it, don't forget to subscribe, guys. Don't forget to like it. It really helps us in the algorithm. We're not a particularly popular show uh, with the platforms, many of the platforms where we uh, put our content because we criticize those platforms a lot, but that's where people need privacy the most. Um, so, you know, helping us out by like liking, sharing this content really does go a long way. So we really appreciate that. But let's talk about AI. Whew, this is going to be a meaty, meaty topic. All right. So, Marta, I don't know if you were as obsessed with this as I was this year, but we had Dali come out, and we had Stable Diffusion, and we had all of these amazing AI generative uh, art tools, which was so cool. Basically, if you aren't keeping up with this, the TLDR is you could type into one of these prompt boxes, you know, draw me a picture of an elephant tightrope walking with a red wig on, um, and he's really scared and do it in the style of Picasso. And suddenly you'd get an image literally just perfectly depicting what you described. AI is getting really, really great. Um, I love it. I think it's fantastic. I've been using these tools. We have chat GPT, um, like, which is basically a way to use GPT-3, which is this AI tool out of open AI uh, and basically channeling it towards like a tool you could type prompts in and it'll answer questions. Super, super cool stuff. Like, honestly, this stuff is awesome. If you're not trying it out, you are way behind the curve and you need to be testing this. But, but along with this AI revolution, there are all kinds of privacy concerns. And I think that if we are going to be moving into this next year and this next decade, we need to be aware of these so that we can preemptively protect ourselves. So, you know, talk, first of all, just talk to me about and explain to people about deep fakes, right? This phenomenon that we've started to see and what people should be concerned about. Yeah. So with deep fakes and, and this even sort of predated the recent, yeah. uh, the recent generative AI, what we've seen is the ability to really create very convincing videos, um, of, of someone saying something or doing something, um, that they in fact didn't do. Um, think of it like Photoshop, but for videos. Um, and so I think there's this real question as to, okay, if you can start to see, um, videos of a politician doing something, horrible that in fact they didn't do or videos of someone saying something that in fact they didn't say. Um, I think there are all sorts of concerns around that. Um, I think it's a legitimate question as to whether 
society just adapts and, and sort of starts to be more skeptical in the same way that we sort of adapted to Photoshop. Um, but I do think that it's something that is is really worth keeping an eye on. And, and as we get these very, very powerful uh, generative tools that really kind of put the ability to make deep fakes in everyone's hands, I think suddenly this, this becomes um, a little bit more of a problem. Yeah, let's talk about de-anonymization now. So AI, you know, this idea that we have all of this data and we're feeding it to these machines and machines are finding patterns and extrapolating and, and coming to all kinds of conclusions that we're like, whoa, as a human, I did not see that pattern, but you're totally correct, AI. Like there's so much uh, information to be gleaned from this data that's being collected um, and it can de-anonymize people. We may go to great lengths um, to make sure that our IP address is never revealed and our name is never revealed and we never uploaded an ID, but the AI says, oh, I notice a similar pattern in the cadence of the typing or whatever. And you can start to de-anonymize people. Like, I think that this is something we should be aware of is how smart these tools are getting. Like if you're using privacy coins that, you know, just kind of um, obfuscate and just like mix things around rather than actually encrypting it and putting like zero knowledge about the transaction out there, AI is getting really good and they'll start to figure out and put two and two together and that data is going to be you know on the blockchain forever so just be really aware of the tools that you're using right um but I think that like we can also draw like zoom out from that and say well how are these AI tools getting information about us how are we voluntarily handing over data and what things can we be doing to not give out so much data about ourselves that can train these tools. So like, what are some thoughts about things? I mean, we've already talked about it, but talk to me about that as a weapon for kind of combating some of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that there's, um, you know, it's always tricky when you say to someone, well, how do, how do we as individual users stop this from happening, right? I think that that is important. It's so important that we are using privacy protective technologies, that we're using Signal, right? Instead of using Telegram, that kind of thing. Um, and all of the amazing things that you talk about um, in your ebook, all the amazing ways that we can protect our privacy as individuals and just avoid having information about us out there in the first place. Um, but at the same time, I also think it's not fair to entirely put the onus on um, us as individuals, um, though that's an important piece of it. Um, you know, I think it's really important that as companies are generating are creating these these very powerful tools that they're thinking very hard about the implications um, about putting these um, these these tools out into the world um, and that they're thinking about what data is being collected um, and what they're doing with the data and what the implications are yeah I completely agree and it all goes back to what we can do you know uh, as empowered individuals like we can pressure these companies if we don't like their policies around how they're handling this data let them know you know push back uh, choose other products and you know it is a kind of like a an interesting balance there because yeah we are empowering ourselves we are choosing better products but this in turn actually changes the actions of these companies as well you know just through our own voluntary actions which is really really an a powerful tool we can all be wielding. So keep that in mind. Um, keep in mind every time you put out data into the world that's being collected that isn't being kept private, that isn't encrypted, be aware that that can be used and you have no idea how that data is being used. Uh, so just be mindful of that. You know, there's a great um, quote, I, I paraphrase it these days, but it actually came from Snowden originally, where, you know, he said like societal norms change, regimes come and go, but that data is forever. And it's such a good point because all 
all of this data that we're voluntarily handing over is going to be there forever. We don't know who's going to use it in the future. We don't know how machines are going to draw references and inferences and all of that from it. So we should be mindful of it. It should be something um, that we're, we're uh, uh, thinking about. Uh, someone asked in the chat, uh, if you donate, does the money go to this show or to other content made by CIT? Are you linked? So we um, are under the umbrella organization, the 501c3 CIT. This enables you to donate to NBTV, completely tax deductible in the United States, which, which is great. We're a nonprofit. Um, and so if you are donating through that YouTube thing there, um, yes, 100% of that goes to NBTV. Uh, as soon as you earmark like this, I want to donate to NBTV, it all goes towards making privacy content on our show. It all goes towards making tutorials about how to empower you as individuals. So yes, that is all coming to us for transparency. Um, it's not going to anything else. Um, the CIT does. It's all NBTV. Thank you for asking that because I'm sure there were probably a lot of people who were wondering. Um, all right. So I wanted to, to look just like there are a couple more AI things that I want to talk about. Um, when we're talking about choosing which companies we want to use, how do we know which ones are the good ones, right? Because so often you get companies like Facebook and, and Google and Twitter, or whatever, and and you get this privacy policy and they say you have to click it and agree to our terms of service and our privacy and make sure you've read it and we're like yeah right it's like 500 pages long i'm not reading this but okay we do that all the time with every tool we use the fact is is that we are entering into contracts with these companies without understanding what those contracts mean and most of the time the contracts are saying hey we have the ability to use every piece of data you're giving to us and then selling that data I think we need to be more aware of this. Again, I hate that I'm saying like, guys, you should read those 500 pages. No, no, you don't need to do that. Like Mozilla, for example, has a great website called Privacy Not Included. You can just type in Facebook and it'll tell you whether they're good for privacy or bad for privacy. Um, I think their meter says, it says like creepy meter. It's pretty cool. It's like, are they creepy or are they not? Um, Facebook's very creepy. So I think that we should be making the most of tools like this. Um, and uh, it, it, like, it's, it's difficult because these companies are so big and they kind of trick us into using their stuff. Like, do you have any better tips for people about all of that stuff? Like it's, it's a hard, hard path to navigate. It's definitely really tough to navigate. Um, you know, EFF also has a report that they put out called who has your back, um, that mm. really sort of rates companies based on really who is protecting users, um, across a variety of, of, um, different criteria. Um, and, you know, I think in addition to that, it, it is really hard to put the onus on users. But one of the things that we've seen, even just recently, there was a, um, AI tool that was very controversial because when you would put in your, you would sort of put in pictures of your yourself um, and it would generate additional AI generated images of you, which are which are very cool. Um, but at the same time, if you looked at the the privacy policy, the terms of service, um, there were a lot of users who were concerned having seen sort of what they were handing over in terms of um, what could be done with those images of their face that they were uploading to this tool, right? And I think that that's particularly um, concerning in a world of facial recognition, right? Um, like when you think about what facial recognition technology is and how powerful it is, um, and you think about sort of um, handing over rights uh, to images of your face uh, to third parties, it, it, it gets very um, uh, sticky. Um, and I think a lot of users were rightfully um, concerned. Um, you know, I think that really, um, 
you know, as I've said, it's, it, it is tough. And I think there's some things that we can do as individuals. Um, but I think it's also really important that we have companies that are really taking um, responsibility and thinking about the, you know, ethics of what they're doing. Um, just to give you one example, um, I was uh, in the beta of, of one of these tools and um, I, I just put in, okay, generate an image of, you know, Marta Belcher in an impressionist style, right? So me. And a really interesting thing that I noticed is it had my hair, it had sort of exactly what I look like, but the face was completely wrong. <laughs> and in all of the photos, and I kept trying this, it's super interesting. It definitely was pulling from photos of me because you could you could see the hair, right? You could see, <laughs> you could see what I looked like, but completely wrong on the face, right? why is that? Well, I have to assume that that company had made a decision, at least at that time, um, to actually not include faces or, or blur out faces from the training set, right? Um, and so you really have to have companies making these types of decisions and thinking about, okay, um, what are the ethics of the things that we're doing? Um, and just to give you some examples of, of the ways in which you really need to think about responsibility as a company, um, uh, one example, um, at one point, uh, Amazon actually was creating an internal tool. Uh, it was a recruiting tool. And it was the idea was you feed it a CV, uh, a resume of someone, and you say, um, how successful is this person likely to be at Amazon? And they were just testing this tool internally. And what they found was that this tool actually basically ended up completely discounting women and saying that women were <laughs> And so if, if, a, if a CV had something that was like, you know, you're on the advisory board for the women in tech organization, right? Or if it saw that you went to a women's um, college. Um, it actually, the algorithm ended up, you know, figuring out, okay, those are things that are likely to make you less successful at Amazon, <laughs> right? Um, and so when you think about really scaling that up in the future, when you think about these tools actually um, being used more and more, I think you can see where um, those types of um, issues, just in terms of what data set you're using as a training set, um, can really cause huge problems. Um, just to give you one other example, there are actually some states in the United States um, where they actually used for sentencing, for criminal sentencing, um, they use a sort of algorithm that determines based on 183 questions, how likely you are to reoffend. And you can easily see those being AI, you know, instead of like a, a sort of formal algorithm with, and questionnaire, you can easily see those tools being AI tools in the future. Um, and so um, you can imagine the ways in which uh, the training data data set, uh, say data sets are different depending on, um, you know, the variety of inputs and the and the training sets. Um, and so I think that we really have to think through um, as as people who are building these technologies, we really have to think through um, uh, what the implications are um, of the technology we're building, how we're building it, and also the training sets that we're using. Absolutely. And be aware of all the pervasive surveillance in your life that is being used to train all this stuff. Like, do you have an Alexa in your living room, like listening to your conversations? Do you have Siri turned on on your phone? Well, not Siri or like, hey, Google or whatever any of these help apps are, uh, like Home Assistant apps. Do you have things just listening to you all the time? Do you have a ring doorbell that is recording you? You know, you have programs like CityWatch watch, which includes like pervasive drone uh, video programs. So, um, you know, it, it, we need to be really cognizant of the things we allow into our life. Like I love technology. I love using technology. I love using cutting edge technology, but we need to realize that technology is neutral. It can be used for good and bad. And when we're making active decisions in our lives, we have a lot of control over whether we let in the good <laughs> or the bad. And so I think we need to be more discerning about some of the 
these like just pervasive surveillance technologies that we're normalizing in our lives. Um, just kind of beware of that, you know, just think about it. That's, that's my parting wish for all of you. Um, so we have some, some questions from the audience. I want to just do rapid fire to get through some of these. Um, someone, no name says, what do you think was the worst privacy breach in 2022? Oh, there was so many. We had like the video we had, you know, I mean, there were a lot of, of privacy breaches. I think that LastPass was like the worst one for me. Basically LastPass is a password manager. Um, and the, the encrypted password vaults of consumers were actually taken. Um, here are two reasons why you should be concerned and shouldn't be concerned. If you followed the guidelines and have a really strong password according to their guidelines, that password vault can't be cracked. It's going to take millions of years, literally, right? Um, you need a really strong randomly generated password on your vault. Now, if you're someone who's like, ah, I'll just skirt around that corner and, you know, I'll use my, like, I'll use a name and it'll be like 10 characters long. Your password vault is probably going to be cracked and you need to get all your passwords out of that manager. So if, yeah, if you have good password practices, then you're golden. If you don't, you should be very concerned. And I think, I hate to have little faith in people, but I think there's going to be a lot of people with uh, weak passwords out there. Um, uh, and this is going to be a huge deal for them. But what do you think, what was your biggest privacy breach. Well, I, I mean, just to add to what you have to say about LastPass, um, I think that that actually goes further to the point of sort of how our company is actually handling our data, yeah. right? Um, and I think that when you look at other competitors, things like 1Password um, and the ways in which they handle customer vaults, um, you know, arguably they're doing it in a way that is um, less likely to be um, uh, to lead to the vulnerabilities that you saw with um, with LastPass. And so I think it's so important, you know, things like your book, Naomi, really uh, telling us about which tools we can use that are actually looking out for us. I think that's something, um, you know, it, it's really hard for us as consumers to know. And I think your book just did a phenomenal job of really laying that out. Thank you. And we also got a few donations here. So Anonymous uh, sent us a donation, RG sent us a donation, and Old School sent us a donation. You guys, we really appreciate you. Um, all right, next rapid fire question. Um, multiple people want me to know that they like how I say data. You know, <laughs> everyone tells me online, they're like, it's data. It's like, I don't have an American accent. <laughs> I'm not sure why that's difficult to comprehend, but some people love it. I'm glad that you guys love it because I think the majority of people hate it. So I appreciate you. Um, all right. Do you recommend any movie related to cybersecurity? Ooh. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What's Citizen Four. Uh, there is no yeah, question. 100%. There is no question. The answer is Citizen Four. It is unbelievable that this moment in time, which was um, uh, Edward Snowden yeah. during the, literally during the time that he's making the disclosures, there was a camera running in that room, uh, in in the Hong Kong hotel room. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's wild. It is like amazing to have like a moment like that in history recorded. Um, and the fact that it, you, it's a movie that you can just watch is unbelievable. So easily Citizen Four, no Absolutely, question. same for me. Go, go and watch it if you haven't already. Um, all right, final one. How about mobile banking apps? How private are they? Oh gosh, <laughs> let's just, let's cut out the banking app part. How private are banks? Banks literally have permission to sell all your financial data. 
data. Did you know that? Did you know that banks are allowed to sell your financial data? Yes, they are. So there are banks out there that will publicize themselves as we will not sell your data. Um, you know, we will only use it in house, whatever. I highly recommend, again, you vote with your feet. Like Chase Bank, for example, is one of the most notorious. They are terrible. Uh, American Express is one of the better ones for credit cards. They do better when it comes to consumer data. There are like more regional banks that you can go to who are usually better, but there are some really egregious offenders out there and it is perfectly legal for them to sell your financial data. So be aware of that and a whole nother reason why we need cryptocurrency as an alternative to this whole system, this surveilled uh, data mining system where they're just taking all of our financial data and the government's giving them permission to, to sell it to whoever. So yes, are banking apps private? No, no, they're not. They're terrible. They're like banks in general, they're collecting all your data. So just be careful. Um, and then Odyssey comment, would you recommend a private hosted Bitwarden? Great question. Um, so Bitwarden, for those of you who don't know, is a password manager and it is highly recommended by security experts. I highly recommend it. Um, it gives you more autonomy. So here are the different versions you could use. You could use Bitwarden as a password manager that is just like in the, their cloud and it's just easy and it's synced across your devices. And I think that's great. But if you're someone who really likes privacy, you can also host your own instance of Bitwarden. Would I recommend that? I think that the average person doesn't need to. Uh, I think that honestly, uh, it's a really good service, very highly regarded in the computer security uh, community. And I think that using their service as is, is gonna be perfectly fine for the average person. But if you are a journalist with sensitive information who might be targeted, if you're a dissident, if you're a whistleblower, if you have higher security needs, I think that definitely like hosting something yourself or even honestly using KeePass XC completely offline is going to be a better option for you. But that's for higher threat model people. So anything that you would want to add to any of that? I uh, know. I think I think once again, um, not only is it great to have you uh, talk about these sort of very practical tips here, but I think you did such an amazing job in your book. So yeah. um, really, really cannot recommend it highly enough in terms of practical tips for everyday privacy. Thank you so much. Well, on that note, guys, we're going to leave you with it. Uh, we've got, you've got a lot to, to munch through. You've got uh, a lot of tips from Marta that you guys can start working through as well. If you wanted to check out the book, we do have a link in the description. Uh, and again, all money raised from that goes directly to our channel um, and just helps us keep providing free content, uh, free tutorials, uh, super long interviews with awesome people like Marta. So thank you to everyone who donated. We got another donation from Anonymous. So thank you so much for that. And honestly, we get a lot of tips on Odyssey as well. Uh, we're not just on YouTube. If you'd rather watch us on a more private platform, Odyssey is a great option. We're also on a bunch of other um, platforms as well. So, you know, if you're trying to extricate yourself from this surveillance minefield, there are tools out there. We go through a lot of them and just watching our show on more private platforms can help as well. All of our short form content is also on Odyssey. Uh, so if you don't want to go on TikTok and Instagram, again, we're there because oh, that's where people need the most help with it, right? see I'm very careful with how I use those apps I silo them on separate devices or like it's honestly I would stay away from them but you can check out all of our tips on Odyssey which is a far more private alternative Marta any closing thoughts like for people in 2023 they're going ahead 
your final final word of advice to them yeah you know i think this is a moment this is a moment where we can really um uh, make a difference particularly people in the cryptocurrency space i think um as we see financial surveillance um being extended to cryptocurrency and where we have a lot of people who care about privacy this is a moment where we can actually fight back against the financial surveillance not just in crypto but also uh that we've seen in the financial system in general absolutely well thank you so much for coming on the show you're wonderful everyone check out all the interviews that Marta has done. She has a fantastic interview with Edward Snowden that I recommend all of you check out. She just did a phenomenal job and all of her work in the privacy space. I'm just so grateful uh, to you guys. I'm grateful for EFF. I'm grateful for Filecoin Foundation, like I, like the Zcash Foundation, like all the things you're involved with. I just am really grateful to see so many people out there who care about privacy, care about moving the needle uh, forward and get, like basically building our decentralized and private future. It's, we need people like you. So thank you. Thank you guys for caring about this stuff. You are everything. You are everything. If you guys care about this stuff, then we have hope for the future. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being here. Share this video to anyone you think might be interested. Um, send us a comment below. It really does help us. Like the video. All of that stuff goes a long way. And we will catch you later. The next video coming out is a really good one. And we're not so just a little sneak peek that'll be out soon um go have a wonderful rest of your day rest of your year here's to privacy hey, i'm a bitcoin staring i'm